0: Welcome to the Oxford Human Rights Hub seminar series podcast. This is a podcast with Professor Donna Grashner from the University of Victoria in Canada, speaking at the Oxford Faculty of Law on the 27th of March 2015 on the topic, the 30th anniversary of the Canadian equality rights, wither sex equality? This podcast is proudly brought to you by the Oxford Human Rights Hub. Thank you all so much for coming. When term is not on, this is a testament not at all to me, but I think to the great interest in uh, comparative human rights that uh, uh, Oxford now represents, due in no small part to Sandy's uh, tremendous work. So your Oxford Human Rights Hub really has become a shining light for many of us around the world. So thank you very much, Sandy. Well, I want you all to thank the person sitting that you're sitting next to for all of their work in human rights. <laughs> it is often a struggle, and there's not enough appreciations of gratitude. So I am uh, really delighted uh, to be here to share with you some thoughts I have about Section 15 on its uh, 30th anniversary, which will be on April 17th of this uh, year. And today I want to focus uh, just a little bit on uh, sex equality and what's happened with uh, sex equality in the intervening years. Uh, This is, uh, for me, part of a larger project that's uh, looking at equality rights and what has happened and trying to put the case law and the litigation into a broader uh, socioeconomic uh, context and thinking about it more from a perspective of political economy as well, trying to for me to kind of bridge the gap between what the law professors in Canada say about the Charter and what the political scientists and others say about the Charter, because often they don't talk to each other uh, sort of quite enough. I will say the literature in Canada on the Charter generally and on uh, equality rights is voluminous. It's enormous, as any of you who are from Canada who have dipped your toes into this ocean of verbiage uh, will know. So I'm not going to give you an overview by any means, uh, and I couldn't because I'm just uh, in the middle of uh, my project uh, myself. So I want to talk a little bit for, I hope, no more than about 25 minutes, And and then I want to get to the reason I came here today, which is to hear your thoughts and suggestions and receive some of your uh, feedback and your views about what's happening in Canada and what is happening uh, elsewhere as well and how we as Canadians uh, could learn from that. So uh, for those of you uh, who may need a refresher about what Section 15 says, uh, there it is. Uh, this was part of the huge set of constitutional amendments that were negotiated uh, uh, after the first Quebec um, separatist government was elected, um, uh, led uh, federally by the then Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau. There was a, uh, a quality rights provision. It was the provision that received uh, significant – perhaps not the most, that's a hard question to say, but significant attention – by all of the various uh, constituents and uh, constituencies in that uh, debate about uh, constitutional amendment. Uh, It was deliberately designed to uh, reverse some uh, bad jurisprudence from the Canadian Supreme Court, uh, such as Uh, a decision which said equal benefit. If you're arguing for a benefit, that's not covered by an equality guarantee. So hence in the second line you see the term and equal benefit of the law without discrimination. It was also designed uh, in response to uh, critics of an entrenched charter uh, who were very afraid of negative repercussions of entrenchment to uh, depart from the American experience. So uh, in the late 70s, as I'm sure all of you know, the American Supreme Court brought down a couple of uh, very regressive decisions on what they call affirmative action programs, and uh, Section 15(2) was added in the Canadian Charter to avoid that uh, experience and bar that interpretation by the Canadian uh, Supreme Court. So we could, of course, talk for hours about uh, the faith and hope that people had at that time, Um, but um, we can't. The other provisions that were added back in the original document were the sex equality provision, Section 28, uh, which which says, notwithstanding anything in this charter, the rights referred to it are guaranteed equally to male and female persons. This is... Uh, this was at the time of drafting the strongest charter provision it says notwithstanding anything in this charter so whereas section 15 is subject to section 1 limitations section 28 arguably is not and it's also not subject to the section 33 override which I'll just assume most of you know what that is (laughs) section 33 override okay and then a year later, uh, after a, another constitutional conference on Aboriginal uh, tra- and Treaty rights, uh, a similar provision was put into Section 35, the Aboriginal Rights Provisions um, provision on uh, sex equality for um, Aboriginal uh, men and women. So here's Section 1. You know, as you know, every right is su- every violation of a right uh, is subject to sex- a Section 1 justification. There's a very clear structure put in place by the Supreme Court since the early days of the Charter for the steps one needs to go through to, to show that a violation of, of a right uh, is justified and, of course, arguably Section 28 is not subject to that. Okay. So what has happened? Well, um, as you know, the first uh, case before the Supreme Court... I should say the equality rights uh, were, given a th- were subject to a three-year delay in implementation, Section 15, because of the concern that, or the, the hope and the part of some, particularly the Canadian feminist uh, movement which has participated so actively and lobbied very hard to have Section 28 inserted and also to make Section 15 as good as it could be So that was the hope that Section 15 and 28 together would be disruptive, that disruptive in the sense of changing existing societal laws, patterns, culture, etc. And there was a fear, of course, on the part of governments that it would be so disruptive they'd be met with a blizzard of uh, litigation and cases uh, and that the better way of managing this uh, change would be for the governments themselves to fix some of the obvious problems. So Section 15 was given a three-year delay. It took effect in 1985. So that's why it's the 30th anniversary of Section 15, but not the charter. Okay? Section 28, again, was not subject to the three-year delay, the strongest uh, provision. So the first case comes before the Supreme Court in 1989. Uh, I'm sure all of you have read. Who has not read Andrews versus Law Society of Upper Canada? See, you all have. You know, Mark Andrews, because uh, it's become such an important case in Canada, but also uh, around the world, uh, looked at by other apex courts. Uh, Mark Andrews was actually a graduate student with San- a student law student with Sandy and I uh, back in 1981, 82, and uh, he was doing the LLB. He fell in love, he's English. He fell in love with a Canadian, another Canadian student, not this one, another (laughs) Canadian student and moved to Vancouver. And when he moves to Vancouver, do you not know this story? He moves to Vancouver, he can't practice law because he's only a permanent resident. He's not a Canadian citizen. You had to wait five years before he could become a citizen. And so he challenges this uh, bar uh, put in place by the Law Society of BC, and he go, it, it, it takes him all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. By the time the case gets there, by the way, he has become a citizen. The case for him is now moot, but the case proceeded because it was, um, it, there were other plaintiffs as well. He was the named plaintiff. He still practices in Vancouver. He's now Mark Andrews QC. He's been very successful, still married to the Canadian student he fell in love with back at Oxford. That's just a little anecdote. Now you'll never forget Andrews versus Law Society in D.C. His fame when he was at Oxford was that he was a very good rower. His fame in Canada now is something quite different. So Andrews set down the basic structure for equality rights. Uh, which I'll talk about. But I want to just give you a sense of what's happened since Andrews, okay, in terms of the number of cases. So up to the end of 2014, and indeed up to this point in time, uh, early 2015, there have been 57 appeals uh, that raised a, a violation of equality rights before the Supreme Court of Canada. That's a generous count on my part, and it's not solely my count. I used some um, a a couple of you know standard databases kept by uh, centers uh, as to how they count equality cases so it includes cases not only like Andrews which were focused solely on section 15 but also cases where there's a number of charter violations raised and there's at least a comment on Section 15, so something more than just, we don't need to deal with Section 15 in this case. Okay, So that's how I've uh, measured it. So the number of appeals, uh, there's only been 57, which is lower than for some of the other really major uh, charter provisions. The success rate is 23%, also a lower success rate than uh, most of the other provisions, such as Uh, freedom of association or or freedom of expression for instance in the last uh, decade okay so just the last 10 years the number of appeals uh, is only 14 out of those 57 and the success rate has dropped to only 7% so if we graphed this of course you'd see a sharp decline in the last decade compared to the first uh, 20 years again it's not surprising for reasons um, I can elaborate so uh, this is uh, um, <coughs> these these are numbers from the Supreme Court of Canada. The numbers at other appellate courts across the country, provincial and the federal court, are not much different. Okay, there's a little bit of difference, but nothing that's uh, significant. Now let us start with the good news. Okay, the good news since 1997. So just eight years after Andrews, the court has said very clearly that Section 15 is about substantive equality. Now, this message that Section 15 is not just about formal equality, treating likes alike, some impoverished notion of Aristotelian equality, although I think sometimes that's not giving due measure to Aristotle uh, with that critique, But there was certainly that thought in Andrews itself, the vision of substantive equality, but not actually the language. The language substantive equality, that term, first appears in 1997. So that's, I think, a major positive development. We will see that often the court has given quite an impoverished notion to what substantive equality means, and it hasn't lived up to all of the high hopes and aspirations of the Section 15 DREAMers uh, back in 1982. But insofar as language continues to be important, it it is a positive development that that language is used, and it continues to be used. Second, there's been no hint of American jurisprudence. Okay, this is a good thing. I mean, we live next door to the elephant. The language just seems to slop over whether we like it or not. And sometimes the door is opened to the language by prime ministers and others. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but there's been no hint of the approach, particularly to uh, charges of sort of reverse discrimination. Uh, so Section 15.2 has done its job in that way. Okay, this is also very positive. There's been uh, acceptance of important analogous grounds, uh, and I have them uh, listed there. Citizenship was, of course, the first. That was the whole Andrews case was based on citizenship. Okay, That was his analogous ground. Uh, marital status uh, first appeared in '95, firmly endorsed in 2002, and sexual orientation in 1995 uh, for the first time. These are grounds which appear in all of the provincial now anyway uh, they didn't in 1982 not sexual orientation in all of the statutory human rights codes which exist in every Canadian um, uh, jurisdiction and now they're constitutionally entrenched there's been recognition of several other grounds but only on a sort of I shouldn't say ad hoc basis but a ground like Aboriginality Residence that deals with uh, the residence of aboriginal persons is just by its uh, nature quite a narrow ground that applies to a very small percentage of the population so there are a couple of others but these are the three major ones okay and i think the most important positive change has been really the sea change which the court helped reinforce it reflected, and I think uh, even the most cynical observers of the court would say, nudged along a bit the, um, the complete removal of any discrimination, um, sorry, any distinctions, legal distinctions, I'm sure discrimination and prejudicial attitudes still exist, on the basis of sexual orientation. Okay, so that the um, in 1982 it was still lawful to discriminate against gays and lesbians in most jurisdictions in Canada the, and that would have been I think widely endorsed by most of the Canadian population at the time in 1982 uh, that those attitudes have changed all the legal distinctions have been removed I tried to think on the Plain on the way over, is there still a legal distinction on the basis of sexual orientation in any aspect of Canadian law anywhere? I could not think of one. Um, Maybe some of you who have studied this area in more detail may actually know of one, but I couldn't think of any. That's enormously positive, Uh, not only in Canada, but also for other apex courts around the world, for other gay and lesbian organizations, for people around the world. I mean, you certainly uh, see it, for example, in the United States, where the Canadian experience has been so powerfully um, important for gays and lesbians who struggle in a very different political climate, although it certainly is getting better in the United States. And, you know, the same-sex marriage decision in 2003 Uh, from the Canadian Supreme Court and the Ontario Court of Appeal decision, which is really such a wonderful exposition of why the arguments used to discriminate against gays and lesbians with respect to marriage are just completely unfounded, um, has been so uh, vitally important. So that's a part of the good news. Another is, of course, uh, there's been an almost complete removal of legal distinctions on the basis of marital status. That's a much more complicated uh, story, uh, marital status, but most of the distinctions in most jurisdictions aren't there anymore. And uh, perhaps we can talk a bit more about that if any of you are uh, interested. So there's been a lot of uh, very uh, good news. Okay, now sex equality. Okay, not so good news. Okay. Section 28. This, the most powerful, powerful provision in the Charter, there's not been a single case uh, which has even raised uh, Section 28 and not a single comment even at the Supreme Court of Canada level or really in any other um, important court. Um, why is this so? Um, we can speculate, uh, but it's been a major disappointment. Uh, for people like me who were you know, just one member of one organization who worked very hard to try to get Section 28 into the uh, Constitution. Uh, with uh, Section 15, uh, there's only been two cases in which the Supreme Court has found a violation of sex equality that couldn't be justified under Section 1. In both cases, the claimant was a man, and, uh, ironic, a white man in both cases as well, I should say, and both cases were what's come to be called recognition cases. They involved status. They involved um, you know, the, uh, um, the allegation of stigma and status. Uh, they weren't cases involving economic benefits or a redistribution of uh, resources. So that has certainly been um, uh, disappointing. I mean, Section uh, 28 uh, has died on the vine. You know, the major, uh, as I'm sure you all know, feminist organi- litigation organization in Canada is called LEAF, the Women's Legal Education and Action Foundation. LEAF coming from that very famous uh, Privy Council decision from 1929, uh, the person's case where uh, Lord Sankey says the British, uh, you know, the Canadian Constitution was, uh, was planted in sort of fertile soil and must be allowed to grow and develop according to its natural limits. So this tree metaphor has a life of its own in Canada, I should tell you. So leaf, you know, was part of this tree metaphor. Well, to continue the metaphor here, and one meaning of my title for this talk, is that Section 28 has just withered on the vine. Right? It did not even bud. Right? It's just been utterly and completely uh, ignored. Um, and that's been uh, a disappointment. Okay. Um, it wasn't even mentioned in a case that uh, cried out for it, which was the NATE versus Newfoundland case in 2004. And let me just tell you about this. I think we have a minute. Uh, the women of Newfoundland, the civil service in Newfoundland, so the provincial civil service, uh, gets a pay equity judgment, the union there, Uh, which, of course, is uh, a judgment that the women employees, the female employees, have been discriminated against on the basis of pay for a number of years. So it's a clear case of sex discrimination. There's a dollar amount put to the awards of some tens of millions of dollars. The Newfoundland government decides it's not going to pay the award and passes legislation uh, nullifying, in essence, the award, NAEP, the union, uh, which is the union goes to court challenging this. Now, you, they, the government argues uh, ec- dire economic circumstances are crises. Now, you would think this is a perfect case for Section 28. Here you have a legal judgment, a legal right uh, already held by a group of women in Newfoundland saying they've been discriminated against, and you have a government which says Um, yes, this is a violation of Section 15, but it's justified under Section 1 because of our economic circumstance. So why not look to the words of Section 28, which says notwithstanding anything in this Charter? Well, the Union doesn't even argue Section 28, unfortunately. No one thought it was going to be... uh, I I don't actually know why uh, there were no more interveners in this case, but there was no uh, argument given to Section 28, and the Supreme Court accepts the evidence of the Newfoundland government that it was indeed an emergency under Section 1 with not even a nod uh, to Section 28. There's been very good analysis of this judgment done, or the evidence raised by Newfoundland done by a number of Canadian feminist scholars which show that although Newfoundland, which historically was a poor province, it's not anymore because oil was discovered off the coast of Newfoundland, um, um, that although it was undergoing tough budgetary times without a doubt, this wasn't unusual in any way. This was just part of the normal ebb and flow and up and down of the Newfoundland economy. It was not a sort of true emergency. So that's been uh, very uh, disappointing. Okay, but some good news. Sex equality as a value has permeated other uh, charter areas, and the. So this is the other meaning of my title. You know the. The old saw wither, you know, um, I decided to use here because it really did encapsulate what's happened to sex equality. Section 28 has died on the vine. Uh, There's been very little action under Section 15, but the value of sex equality actually has, has traveled. It's gone here and on. Okay, so we can ask, well, where is it now? Whither has it gone? And it's gone to other areas such as Section 7. Section 7, you know, the story of the Canadian Charter, in a way, not a story I can tell today, but the story is there was so much hope around Section 15, so much anticipation of the huge change it would have on the Canadian legal system, that indeed three years were given to governments to prepare for this change, and yet there's been a lower number of cases, a lower success rate for these cases. Its hopes have not been realized, uh, even by the more realistic of its uh, dreamers, Section 7, on the other hand, which is the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, uh, except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice, was, was not nearly as much attention was given to Section 7. It was seen as a, a procedural due process. It opened up the criminal uh, law rights in Section 8 to 13. The, um, there was certainly some feminist attention to it, so it begins with everyone, not every person, because it didn't want, feminist organizations didn't want the importation of the American arguments that person included a fetus. And therefore, Section 7 banned abortion. Okay? So uh, that was a really critical argument that was made at the time, not only by feminist organizations, but by some of the more progressive uh, premiers and other politicians as well. Okay, so there was some attention given to Section 7, but nothing like Section 15. This is my personal memory, okay, of what was happening. Section 7 has blossomed far beyond the expectations of even the most optimistic, uh, participant back then. It has become the master section. So, for instance, the judgment uh, just a few weeks ago on the right to die with dignity, Carter versus Canada, uh, is a Section 7 judgment. Okay, maybe that was more could have been more anticipated than some of the other decisions which have taken place not under Section 15, like the Bedford decision, which struck down Canada's prohibitions on. Um, uh, living off the avails of prostitution, the whole body of laws that cr- criminalized every aspect of the sex trade in Canada, which, of course, has a grossly disproportionate effect on poor women, and Aboriginal women, racialized women in particular. So that was struck down as a sec- Section 7 violations, not a Section 15 argument, although one would expect Section 15 was the natural there. Okay. So the story really here is Section 7 given, um, I'm exaggerating not too much, given not that much attention back in 1982 has become this amazing, amazing section, section 15, and particularly sex equality, to which so much attention was given has just withered on the vine. Okay. Now you can see the impact, however, of sex equality when you look at the jurisprudence in other sections. So I teach evidence law, for instance, and a huge part of evidence law is all about the prosecution of sexual assault, which is, of course, a um, a series of offenses uh, with disparate impact on the basis of gender. Uh, the, The language of promoting sex equality, ridding the law of sexist stereotypes regarding women and the sexual behavior of women just runs through all of these cases. And there has been a revolution in evidence law in Canada. Indeed, there was not, in the course I taught last year for the first time, there was only one case in this casebook of only 1,000 pages. There's some Canadian students in here, right? You've taken Canadian evidence? There's only one case in that huge Stuart casebook, the standard casebook everybody uses, that I studied as a student. Now, I know I graduated in early medieval times, but this is likely the only area of Canadian law other than the charter itself where you could say that, where there's only one case, and it's a British case. It's not even a Canadian case. It's the British case of Subramanium on confessions, the common law confessions rules. Everything else has been a revolution, and one of the driving features of this revolution has been promoting sex equality within the criminal law and within the law of evidence. So some good things uh, really have happened. Uh, other case, the cases involving other grounds, such as marital status, sexual orientation, of course, have had a huge positive impact on women. Right? Uh, I'm I'm of course doing something which, as a feminist, I ought not to do, which is not to uh, which is trying to look only at one of only at sex equality, rather than, of course, recognizing which I recognize all the intersections and multiplicities of identities uh, that uh, women uh, have. And broadly, of course, recognition rights have been accepted. So you're all familiar with the distinction which has been so eloquently made by Sandy between recognition rights and uh, redistribution rights. Uh, um, and although her analysis is much more uh, sophisticated and eloquent, but broadly recognition rights have been recognized. And that's not to be downplayed. It's not to be downplayed. The importance of getting rid of the uh, facial distinctions on the basis of sexual orientation, the prohibitions uh, or the permissiveness of discrimination on other grounds, that's all been profoundly uh, good. It's just that it's not enough. Okay? So the politics of redistribution, on the other hand, the, the, this is again now the bad, the, the bad news, good news versus bad news. There's, of course, an inverse relationship between the likelihood of success in cases involving uh, money, re, money from the government, so redistribution of public resources, uh, where government policy or programs has been challenged, uh, between the likelihood of succeeding in those claims and the cost of the remedy. So between 89 and 2012, uh, there were 13 cases involving public benefits programs, so cash or in-kind. I'm not talking about private benefits, such as access to spousal support, for instance. Uh, I call those recognition cases, right? And they've all been uh, very positive. Uh, There's only been five wins, eight losses, and again, the uh, larger the cost of the remedy, the less likely that uh, the case will uh, succeed. The low-water marks uh, really have been gosselin, uh, the challenge to Quebec's uh, age uh, discriminatory policies for social assistance, uh, where Quebec uh, gave uh, young people between the ages of 25 and 29 Younger than 25, actually. If they weren't in school or in one of the workfare programs, uh, only $170 a month. Now, the cost of living in Montreal is not as high as it is in Vancouver. Never has been, but you could not survive on $170 a month in Montreal, even back in the 1970s. That was uh, starvation uh, assistance. And uh, the Nate case, where the uh, legal uh, entitlements of women uh, of, the, of the provincial employees was, um, was not upheld. Okay? So it's uh, not been uh, good news uh, on that front. And that's of course where all the action is now. And all the action has been uh, with respect to sex equality and most of the other grounds now for the last 10 to 15 years. It's been about the redistribution of resources. So the jurisprudential structure, uh, quickly. Okay, and then I will stop. Okay, um, a couple more slides here. Okay, Uh, there's been three ages of equality rights. There's been the Andrews in '89. Uh, The court then uh, splintered very badly uh, throughout the early 1990s in uh, a trilogy, a trilogy in particular, where there seemed to be no unified uh, uh, position, no consensus. In 1999, 10 years later, the court writes uh, Law v. Canada, which attempts to integrate uh, all these different approaches, and the court there announces dignity as the underlying value of Section uh, 15 claims. And so c- claimants essentially have to prove their dignity has been violated before they succeed. Uh, that didn't prove to be particularly helpful to litigators, to uh, uh, Organizations to disadvantaged persons, etc. So, in 2008, there was another rethinking of equality uh, jurisprudence in the case called Cap. Uh, I'm sure you all uh, are aware of this. So, the court announces, really, without any warning in law, and then again, without any warning in Cap, that it's uh, developed a new approach. And the Cap approach, okay. Um, is this. So CAP is written as a joint decision by two women, the Chief Justice, Beverly McLaughlin, and Justice uh, Rosalie Bella, and their attempt is to simplify, they, to respond to all the critics of the law test. So those of you who have read CAP will know the famous footnote one, where they cite a representative sampling of the you know, flood of academic uh, criticism of the law test. Okay, And this is the current approach. I apologize for the small type. Uh, They do a couple of things uh, in CAP. They uh, first try to integrate Section 15.2 into the equality analysis, and I think this is a good thing, that 15.2 is not just an interpretive aid. It actually is part and parcel of the Section 15 doctrinal structure. Whether they've quite got it right... um, is another uh, story, but I think the basic idea of integrating it is a good one. So first, the claimant has to prove a distinction on an enumerated or analogous ground. Then the government has an opportunity to show that the impugned law is actually uh, ameliorative, as per Section 15.2. If the government uh, uh, succeeds, that's the end of it. You don't go any further. If the government fails... Then the claimant has to show that the distinction is called discriminatory. More about that in a minute. If at the end of that inquiry the claimant succeeds and yes, indeed, there's discrimination, then you have a Section 15 violation. Okay? And then the last step is to Section 1. Can the government justify this? If not, you get to that really critical last step what's the appropriate remedy? And as the survey of the benefits cases show the more expensive the remedy the least likely you are to succeed at the previous steps okay so that's the uh, the cap uh, approach okay and it has still lots of barriers for claimants okay the first step there's been little the claimant has to prove a distinction on one of the uh, analogous or enumerated grounds. Well, there's been little recognition in the case law of adverse effects discrimination, where you can prove. Well, maybe it doesn't say in the program discriminations on the basis of sex, but the impact is disproportionately negative for women. You you really do need a facial, direct, obvious distinction. Okay. Still. There was more attention paid to adverse effects uh, discrimination back in the old days. Uh, Step two, can the government prove an ameliorative objective uh, from the program? The government has quite an easy time in this. And a number of lower court decisions after CAP, CAP itself turned on this issue, a number of lower court decisions just got rid of challenges on the basis of Section 15 under this uh, program. So the court has kind of strengthened this a little bit in a later case, uh, a couple of years later, called uh, Cunningham. Okay, so it's not quite as bad as it first was. And then the step three, really critical step, uh, the claimant then has to prove discrimination. And that is limited to a very narrow set of harms the disadvantage created by per- perpetuating prejudice or stereotyping. So these really are recognition harms. They're, Sandy uses the language of stigma, okay? uh, symbolic harms, harms to your dignity, status harms. I'm not minimizing them, but they're only one of the four types of harms that women uh, uh, sort of suffer. So that's been a problem Okay, and uh, has attracted a fair amount of uh, criticism. So what we see again here, and I'm going to wrap up, (laughs) what we see again is, consistent with the pattern of Section 15 doctrine, you've got a a court coalescing around an approach, as it did in Andrews, where the entire court was unanimous about the approach. The court just splintered on what was the Section 1 justification. The court then does the same thing with law, responding to all the factions within the court and the academic commentary between Andrews and Law. Then there's lots of critique again, and the court seeks again to coalesce behind the CAP uh, articulation. And for a while, they all seem uniform. Now it's splintered again. So that's why I say it's déjà vu all over again. You have again a splinter in court. This is the most recent decision, Quebec VA, uh, 2013, uh, where you've got four judgments, uh, lots of different uh, positions being taken. Uh, Justice Abella, in which th- four other members of the court agree, so her opinion really is the majority on Section 15, say that <coughs> the particular law, which was a the ground was marital status, was a violation of Section 15 that could not be justified under Section 1. And then the court kind of splits in a number of uh, different ways. So I will bet $5, Canadian, (laughs) that in a couple of years, it might be two years, it might be five years, we'll see another judgment from the Supreme Court, which tries to again ensure that the... Uh, symbolic and rhetorical commitment to substantive equality, which has been there from the beginning, which is there in the Andrews decision. The rejection that Section 15 is just about formal equality, that it's much more than that, that it's aspirational, that it's meant to be disruptive, that it uh, then clearly articulates from, um, um, from the late 1990s onwards, that they'll again sit down and say, okay, now where have we gone wrong? Why has this approach uh, been too narrow? What can we do to kind of build a different uh, jurisprudential structure? So I'll bet they will do this again, okay? I'm uh, uh, optimistic about that, okay? So I want to leave with a somewhat, before question, somewhat optimistic uh, note. uh, What is to be done, okay? The jurisprudence at the moment does not look good. Okay, very few sex equality cases, very little attention given to adverse effects discrimination. Uh, CAP test, which is a bit, I shouldn't say a bit, which is narrow. Okay? It's hard to get yourself within it. Uh, Gosseland still haunting us all uh, with its rejection of uh, economic and social rights. So, what is to be done? Well, um, in my usual sort of optimistic way, okay, first, don't be surprised by the numbers. Uh, This is to be expected, and the political scientists here have done some very good work mapping out uh, the court as a political institution within the larger framework, not only in Canada but in other areas as well, but the Canadian literature here is quite good, that as the charter matures, there will be lower case numbers and a lower success rate is to be expected, it's unavoidable, it's true across the board. Even with Section 7, which has blossomed, okay, there isn't that flurry of activity as there was in the first 15 years. You won't see them in the next uh, 15, and we'll see even less of them. Okay, so don't be surprised by it. My second point is stay optimistic. The court uh, has has been willing to do two things. First. In the Section 15 area, it's been very willing to respond to the criticism. I mean, it's clearly paying attention to what academics are saying, even when it doesn't recognize uh, in, dis- in particular decisions uh, the academic critique. But it pays attention. its I think it's being motivated by a good heart, <laughs> many of its judges, right? They want uh, to do the right thing. Will they, of course, accept... Every argument made by the most left-wing, the most progressive academic or litigator in Canada—of course not. They're a court, for goodness' sakes. They're not going to do that, and it's, you know, not fair to diss on them simply because they haven't uh, reflected your particular political stance. You know, the question is, how are they doing as a court in this particular context with the particular material that they've been given to work with? And one can be critical. Uh, but one can also be optimistic uh, with that and laudatory with a lot of what they've done. So they've not only shown a, a tendency thus far to rethink their Section 15 jurisprudence, they've also uh, rethought some precedents in other areas. And let me give you one example. In the early 19, in the late 1980s. In the first freedom of association cases under Section 2D of the Charter, the Supreme Court said the freedom of association does not include the right to strike. There was a dissent authored by the then Chief Justice uh, Brian Dixon. Uh, Just recently, uh, the court has rejected that uh, line of cases, the majority opinions as precedent, and announced freedom of association includes the right to strike. The Carter decision, which I already mentioned on the right to die with dignity, the 93 case in Rodriguez rejected that right, read uh, the charter narrowly to reject it. Uh, the court unanimously in Carter says it's there in Section 7, restrictions can't be justified. So it shows this willingness to rethink its own uh, precedence. And one can hope, the optimist that I am, you know I was born in Saskatchewan, it's next to your country. You're naturally optimistic because life is always so hard, you always think next year will be better. <laughs> it's the only way to survive. So maybe Gosselin, uh, the ruling in Gosseland will be uh, next. Uh, we can hope. And in questions, I can uh, tell you why I'm a little bit optimistic there. The th- my third point is prepare. And prepare here, now as a a litigator, I would prepare in two ways. Uh, One is to collect as much evidence as possible about harms and harms suffered by different individuals and different groups. The cases in the lower courts in particular that have been successful have involved uh, the stories uh, being told by more than just one claimant or one claimant representing one class. Okay, so that you then have a better chance of the story resonating with more judges along the way, uh, from the lower courts all the way up. And the same with expert evidence uh, in support of your claims. Uh, use as many as, your, as the court allows you to use. Most lower courts will say five experts, that's it, unless you have leave. Uh, get them uh, cross-examined if you can. Their evidence is then more credible, et cetera. And the other thing I would do to prepare is start building more arguments about international understandings of substantive equality. It's been sadly lacking in Canadian equality jurisprudence. Why is this so? You know, the cynic might say the Canadians have been so arrogant about their great charter of rights and freedoms in equality rights, they haven't paid attention to what's going on in the rest of the world. I, for one, reject that argument. Maybe because... I live part of the time in the United States, and our arrogance looks very small compared to the Americans. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Although the Americans have had nothing to be arrogant about with equality for 45 years, 50 years. Uh, maybe. Um, you know, I don't know, but there's so much wonderful work, particularly on economic and social rights, being done internationally, not only by other apex courts, but in the international law community, by scholars like Sandy, by the Oxford Human Rights Hub, all of that work, and it is virtually ignored, in equality rights jurisprudence. And in part, I think it's because Canadian interveners, lawyers, don't put it in. Whereas in the freedom of association cases, and the labor law cases, I think a lot of the people involved in those types of, and it's a different group of lawyers, okay, different group of professors, they're much more attuned to the international context than some of the lawyers working in the Section 15 field, okay, maybe that's an accident of who the people are, I don't know, I'm going to actually explore that a little bit as I move forward uh, with my project, but I think it has a lot to offer, uh, substantive equality understandings in Canada, and I would uh, sort of push that. Um, the other thing I would do is to take three tracks at one time, you know, to focus on statutory human rights codes, which are, you know, alive and well in Canada, and have, for the first 15 years of the Charter at least, were virtually ignored. Well, as the Charter sort of contracted, uh, particularly after Gosselin, where the court wouldn't. You know, take that next step into economic and social rights and I think there were actually good reasons for that I may not defend the decision but I can understand it I can understand why the court took the position it did Um, more attention starting to be paid again to the statutory human rights codes there's been some very good decisions from the Supreme Court recently on involving um, cases brought under those codes so to continue to focus on that is a very good thing And, of course, to focus on politics. You know, one of the dynamics, of course, that the court has had to play with and contend with for almost the last decade has been a very conservative government in Canada that's tried to move Canada quite successfully in some areas, much closer to American conservative politics. This has put the court on a number of different fronts, not just on the charter, in a very delicate uh, position. And uh, we can only hope but that's not going to last forever. Okay? So on that very, very optimistic note, uh, thank you so much for listening to me. And uh, I want to thank our suggestions. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Oxford Human Rights Hub podcast. To find out more about the Oxford Human Rights Hub, please visit our website at www.ohrh.law.ox.ac.uk. The Oxford Human Rights Hub, global perspectives on human rights.